everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. I am talking to Doc Searles today and Dave Hughesby, who you probably remember from a couple previous episodes that we will link to. And Dave, well, Dave, your bio kind of changes. I wonder, I wonder what kind of uh, cool stuff you could, you could tell us about yourself. But before we get into that, um, I wanted to remind everyone to visit our website at reality2cast.com. That's the number two, where you can find links and a lot of other good stuff. Um, but yeah, so, so Dave, first of all, welcome back. But second, you're always up to something really interesting. And, and so it's always really fun when we get an email from you. With, the, with a bunch of links that are, uh, well, so occasionally over my head, but that's fine. That's um, how I learn things. But yeah, so, so, so what are you doing these days for real? Like, if you have to introduce yourself, how do you do it today? Uh, well, I mean, I'm the universal internet malcontent, apparently. <laughs> okay, well, that's cool. Not to put you on the spot or anything. So what are you doing? Um, so my day job officially is I am co-founder and CEO of a crypto engineering firm called Cryptid Technologies. And it was born out of everything that I have learned and my co-founders have learned from our long histories being on the internet. It's a bunch of gray beards. Well, not all beards because that, but uh, we are industry veterans who have been in and around security and technology for decades. And we all met as part of the Hyperledger project over the last four years. And we've also known each other through the Internet Identity Workshop um, from the last, I don't know what it is, 10 years or something. And <clears throat> I started my journey down this road back in the early 90s, you know, when we had the first crypto wars. And you know, I've kind of come in and out, but for the last 15 years, um, I've been really focused mostly on cryptography, privacy, that kind of stuff. Cause I got involved in the tour project very early on, uh, in early two thousands, um, as a volunteer an anonymous volunteer, by the way, I, I taught myself everything I needed to know about how I could use the internet anonymously. And, you know, I part of the cypherpunks mailing list and you know anonymous remailers remember when that was the big topic how do you send email <laughs> anonymously um something i wanted to bring up like i i've been going down memory lane lately um and wondering where the philosophy went what changed that's what i want to know is what the hell changed because where are all the cypherpunks doc you and i aren't the only ones left i know that's true <laughs> i i was never uh, competent enough to be a cypherpunk, but I knew a lot of them. Um, you know, this guy named Eric Hughes, who was absolutely brilliant, but right. I don't know where he is now. Um, right. That's my point. Where are they? Yeah. I don't know where he is. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, like, you know, I worked at Mozilla. I worked at, um, the Lakes Foundation on the Hyperledger and everybody is groping around to try to figure out how to deploy blockchain technology and they've we've invented this nfts and these web3 things and and what i wanted to come on and talk about was i think what everybody's groping for is authenticity trust mm -hmm. in data is this data real can i trust what it says does it come from where i think it comes from does it say what it says it said you know like has it been modified you know where did it come from is it still valid or has it been revoked 
that kind of stuff. Um, we covered that in my two previous times I was on here. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to give an update because this has been a multi-year project for me. And one of the cool things about this podcast and your listeners is if they go back and listen to the ones I was on, the, you can actually see how my thinking has evolved and how we have learned as we have been in the market and building solutions for our customers. And anyway, that's where I wanted to go. Catherine, you had a couple questions. You wanted to do some introductory questions before I dug in and held sermon for an hour. Oh, I do. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, well, actually, Doc uh, wanted to, I think, go into what zero, zero knowledge. Which are... We were having a conversation, and it might be worth just going into this thing, going out of it, which is that you pointed us to something that news-wise could help locate it in time. Came out sure. of the White House, this uh, Yesterday. memorandum on improving cybersecurity mm -hmm. security Department of Defense and Intelligence Community System, which has something cool in it. And just tell us what that is and, and why it's cool. Well, and then we go if you... To, to your rest of your report. Yeah. So, excuse me. <laughs> um, like everybody else, I also have a bit of a cough. This memorandum out of the White House is really interesting. Um, I carefully watch our politicians because um, they tend to be reactive rather than proactive. And it's really interesting to see what yeah. their perception of the world is. Um, and you can kind of gauge that based on how they react. And this came out of nowhere. I don't, I, I understand that the government, the federal government has been talking about improving cybersecurity. And there's been a lot of warnings like, oh, we're losing the security race and whatnot. And there was an executive order last year about, um, improving security using what's called zero trust architecture. And this memorandum that came out yesterday furthered that. Um, I don't know what weight this has. It's not an executive order. It's just a memorandum, but I guess it's sort of an intent document from the white house. This is what we'd like to see all of the executive, uh, it, um, organizations heading towards, right. And that then I guess requires some explanation. What is zero trust architecture? This is a radical departure from traditional computer security. Forever, computers have always had digital gates around them. And for most people, it's always been in the form of a username and password. So you want to log into a computer, you want to send an email, you want to do any of that stuff. You want to check your bank records. By and large, you still need a username and password. Zero, zero trust architecture throws that out. It changes the access model from being one, which is called uh, access control lists. Access control lists are like on the computer, it says, oh, that's Doc. He gave me our username, oh, that's Doc. Doc can do X, Y, and Z. Oh, that's Catherine. Catherine can do A, B, and C. We're moving away from that to a more decentralized approach for security where, I mean, it's, it really can be boiled down to trust me never. Mm -hmm. And it, it, that's why they call it zero trust architecture, like no service or no process on a computer, no service on a computer, no computers ever trust each other. It's mutual distrust at all levels of the computer, of, of a computer system. So, uh, one process wants to like, say, I've got a web browser 
on my computer and I want to copy and paste from the web browser into a text editor. Those are two separate processes on a computer in a fully zero trust architecture. You can't do that because those processes are in jails, preferably in a vir like as virtual machines on a hypervisor and you just can't copy and paste between them. But at a network level, when you're talking about multiple computers talking to each other, they don't trust each other. There's really no such thing as inside the firewall. Um, you, there's no blanket access where if I can get inside the firewall, I can access everything inside the firewall. It kind of makes the firewall somewhat irrelevant in the sense that even if you get inside the firewall, every computer you talk to is going to ask you to prove that you have access to it. Not prove who you are, but prove that you possess some piece of data that grants you access to the services on that computer. So, so Does that make sense? Trust is its own firewall in a way, and but it takes a, it actually invalidates the firewall <clears throat> metaphor the, that you have this kind of wall there that has been being yes. by lists on the inside and login and password on the outside. That's correct. Yeah, there is no such thing as like a walled garden where once you get in, you can run wild and do whatever you want. Um, zero trust architecture is built on cryptography. And so what I want to say is, you know, the, the strategy, we just had a strategy meeting inside our company just the other day. Um, and we were, we've been trying to come up with some marketing messages for all the different people we talk to business leaders, technical people and all that stuff. And, and the, the common theme is that applied cryptography is now the new foundation for enterprise computing. Because if the federal government is reacting by adopting zero trust architecture, which is applied cryptography for security purposes, then it's already common in industry because our government rarely leads. They usually follow. And so we're seeing widespread adoption of applied cryptography. And it just means that it's going to drive like data and authenticity around data. That's what, you know, our last two. Uh, podcasts were about, you know, the authentic data economy. It's going to drive things like IAM, uh, DRM, you know, digital rights management, all those kinds of things. And so being sufficiently well-versed in applied cryptography is going to be an essential uh, component of any leadership in any business, you know, any technical leadership in any business, um, if it isn't already. And that's what's interesting about this White House memo. It's just basically saying, we recognize that there is a shift in the world, that this is the current state of the art in computer security, and we're going to head in that direction. What they don't say is what zero trust architecture is. And that's what I'm telling you. It's applied cryptography. If I want to send a message from one computer to another, I have to present proof that I have, um, an I have access, access has been granted. And the data that I'm sending is encrypted in a way that the recipient can decrypt it. Um, Every step from authenticating me to authorizing me to communicating with me, every piece has encryption involved, mm -hmm. every piece, whether it's a zero knowledge proof, um, to prove that I possess a piece of data, you know, such as like an access token, or it's a digital signature that says, you know, I control a key pair. Uh, that's associated, that's been, you know, granted access to write data into the system. So I sign it with that key pair, the system validates the key pair and accepts the data. 
or just, you know, standard encryption on the fly, right? Just encrypting the data on, on the move. Uh, every step requires encryption. And that's why, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to turn this into a sales pitch for my company, but um, we are launching in the next, you know, month or two, uh, a secrecy as a service platform. Um, and our sales pitch is, why are you still doing cryptography? It's really hard to get right. Just let us do it. Right. But I, you know, I don't want to, I'm not here to sell the company. I'm here to talk about something really a lot more important than that. Um, go for it. Uh, so the zero architecture is really cool, but we take it a step further. And this is where we get back to user sovereignty doc and the, uh, the, um, the authentic data economy and how we're going to build on top of zero trust architecture to move us in a direction, move the whole world in a direction where we can reduce fraud and we can up the trust in systems and comply with all these privacy regulations in a sane way. I, th I think everybody understands that privacy regulations are just, you know, companies comply by throwing an interstitial in front of you and nobody ever reads them. They're just like, yep, yeah, fine, whatever, you know, and they click through the EULAs on websites and you know, about cookies and whatever. And so GDPR and CCPA and those, those kinds of regulations really haven't shifted the, the privacy landscape that much. It certainly hasn't slowed down surveillance capitalism. Um, and so I wrote about this recently on medium and I can give you guys the link to my stories here if anybody's curious, but I wrote one called, uh, achieving absolute privacy. And it's about how the most important thing we can do in the authentic data economy is to combine it with, um, verifiable computation. And I can explain that one too. Verifiable computation, for those of you who don't know, is a way to send software, send code to another computer, another party. They execute the code in such a way that they can prove cryptographically, right? So there's cryptography involved. They can prove that they did the calculation correctly. Okay. So this is how Ethereum works hmm. in the end, right? You write a smart contract. Um, they get sent to uh, all the nodes in the network. The, net, the network runs them. They are verifiable computation. They run the smart contract and they can prove that they did it. That's how they can claim the gas, the fees, is they can prove they did the execution correctly. Um, what I'm trying to bring to the world, and this is part of our platform and a lot of open source code that we're doing, is this thing we call verifiable, or sorry, cryptographic qualifications. And I call it that because it's like, I am qualified to access the system. I am qualified to do X, Y, and Z. Like I am qualified to go to this concert because I am a paid ticket holder. I am qualified to enter this space because I am vaccinated. And the reason this is important, this approach is by encoding the policies of these digital gates, as I call them, you know, these gates, they check you out. Like, you know, do you have a ticket? Can you get into the game? Uh, are you vaccinated? Whatever. These are digital checks, right? Um, they're gates. You encode the policy of the gate as a verifiable computation and you send it to the person trying to get through the gate. So that's why it's called a, a cryptographic qualification. I, I'm 
using cryptography to qualify mm. to pass the game. Okay. Now here's our novel invention, which is with the whole authentic data economy, which is essentially the, like the mother of all digital rights management systems. It's, it's, if you publish data as authentic data, that data can be independently verified where it came from, who got, has it, that it hasn't been modified, that it hasn't been revoked. Um, we combine that with verifiable computation to create private, absolutely private transactions that are also regulation compliant. Because I, if I want to buy something, I can prove that I'm KYC without giving any of my KYC data. The, the store can give me a, you know, a KYC check as a verifiable competition. I have my KYC data as authentic data that I keep private. I combine authentic data that I hold privately with this uh, verifiable computation that I get from this gate or this company or whatever, and it produces a yes, no answer and proofs that the inputs were, were authentic and I did the calculation correctly. Um, if I give that along with a verifiable and verifiably encrypted, say like transaction ID that can be walked back to my KYC vendor in the happy path, I have just now legally, and I, and I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm not a lawyer. So talk to your own yeah, counsel. Don't take my, be, yeah. yeah, don't, don't take my advice on this, but I think, I think that we can meet not only in spirit, but legally, um, things like KYC laws, because what I've done is I've passed a KYC check. Like I have been KYC and you sent me a co some code that verified that I have been KYC. And then I give you the proofs that I did it all correctly and that the KYC input was valid. And I give you an encrypted ID. The, the, the merchant or whoever can verify can be decrypted by my KYC vendor. So in the happy path, every, the, the merchant knows nothing about, but they're able to verify that I have been KYC by a legitimate KYC vendor. And they now possess a little piece of encrypted data. They know the KYC vendor can decrypt. If there's ever need to be an investigation and there's like a, a warrant issued, the merchant can give up that data as part of the investigation mm -hmm. and they can walk it back to the KYC vendor and de-anonymize. So for so those it's, who's, and it's, it's not perfect a, fourth amendment privacy, essentially is okay. it's using cryptography. Yeah, illegal search and seizure. So a, so for those who may not know all their TLAs, KYC is know your customer, right? Oh yeah, that's right. I, yeah, know your customer. Yeah, that's an environment. But, but I'm sorry. Even going the other way, okay, which is know your company, okay. Yes. Um, because the the world that I envision is one in which I know that I am a customer of, or that I have dealings with these five companies or these fifty companies, whatever they are. In other words, what I'm keeping on my side is no longer um, uh, a roster of logins and passwords. I'm I'm carrying what in the, in the SSI world, they're calling verifiable credentials, but you're, you've got a twist on this, which is verifiable encryption has been, has been done in some way. And, but architecturally it's pretty similar, is it not? Or maybe it's. No, maybe it's, it's a radical departure of what the SSI community is doing. The, okay. the stuff that you're seeing out of the W3C does not do anything to really preserve privacy. They okay. are doing what's called selective disclosure, but because of my years at Mozilla studying, you know, global surveillance and anti-surveillance on the web, I know that there are empirical models out there 
uh, you know, Facebook, Google, I, I don't know if they have them. I don't know exactly which companies, but I know that there are these mountains of data where they have observations, you know, thousands, if not millions of observations on every human that is tied to right. our real yeah. identity. And so if you give away even just a little bit, like, right. you know, you've been fingerprinted and, and whether you like it or not. So, and it doesn't take a lot of bits of information. To yeah. Identify. So but what I'm looking for yeah. maybe is, is, is a, so part of the idea, I mean, I think the, so in a way what you're talking about is self-sovereign, but not necessarily with that schema. But what I would, what I've always liked about SSI is that not, I don't even know what the hell W3C is doing. So I'm not that versed on any of this. So I'm looking, what I'm sure about instead is I, I'm, Okay, I am I am a customer of uh, Budget Rent a Car. I want to let them know that I am a customer of you guys, or they want to know. I just want to rent a car. I mean, I'm just thinking, what are the types of interactions that might happen that are confined in the way that you're talking about that doesn't involve me having to spill a whole bunch of shit about myself that is irrelevant and can be used for fingerprinting. Well, you just distill, what is it that they need to know? <clears throat> okay. Right. If you want to rent a car, what do they need to know? That you're a licensed driver, that you have insurance or that you're going to buy insurance, uh, that, uh, you're old enough. That's really what they need to know. They can encapsulate that as a, a cryptographic qualification, you know, some verifiable computation that they give to me and I run it over my authentic data that has been issued to me uh, from the societal institutions that are going to be, you know, be, it'll be enterprises, it'll be governments, it'll be nonprofits, whatever. You know, we're already talking about mobile driver's licenses. Um, there's also, you know, I saw that credit rating agencies are very interested in doing this, issuing all that data to us. Well, that data as authentic, I'm saying, give it to me. Don't give it to anybody else. Right. Um, because it's about me. It's my data. And we will possess all of this data about us. And if you encapsulate it in, in a, a verifiable computation in these cryptographic qualifications, they can send it to me and I run it over my private data. And so their policy would be, are you old enough? Are you a licensed driver? You know, do you have insurance or have you purchased insurance for this trip? And what gets goes back to them is a yes or no. It is literally one bit. Do I qualify or do I not qualify? And then also the proofs that I did the competition correctly and that all the inputs were correct. Now, if they need to have a way to unwind my anonymity, to de-anonymize me mm -hmm. or to know who my insurance company or is or whatever is, I can also give them this verifiable, verifiably encrypted data. They can't decrypt it, but they can verify who can decrypt it. And so I could say, look, I am a customer of USAA bank and I have USAA car insurance, auto insurance. I can give them a, like my insurance information verifiably encrypted for USAA. So if I never have an accident and there's no need to go to my insurance, my privacy uh, is maintained. Absolutely. The only amount of data they get from me is that 
I'm a customer of USAA. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have to be careful about how many of those we give because that starts to narrow down. Like, I mean, you, you know, let's say I am a yeah. customer of USAA and That's I also part of a fingerprint. Right. You, you, yeah. The combination of these verifiable encryptions could be a fingerprint in and of itself. But I'm comfortable, you know, this allows people to dial in their comfort level for their privacy. I'm comfortable telling someone that I'm a customer of USA because they have millions and millions of customers. And I haven't given them any other data about just a one bit, yes, I meet your qualifications to rent your car. Mm -hmm. Right? So, so. I, I guess my biggest question about all of this is so, now that you've sort of unlocked the part of the answer anyway, what is the incentive for adopting this way of interacting? Oh, that's the perfect question. I mean, I, for businesses, obviously. For us, you know, for those of us who care about our privacy, there's great incentives. But, you know, again, well, that's a small group. I have two answers. Group. I have two answers. Sorry for cutting you off. No, no. two answers. One of them is... Regulation compliance and how much money it will save the business. Okay. The other one should scare the hell out of everybody else. So <laughs> the first answer, we'll, we'll start with that one. Um, if a business, let me, let me tell you a story. So I have, I have a friend who works for a really great organization. And I, I don't want to out them, but this organization funnels corporate money to the employees of these corporations for the purposes of disaster relief. So these large corporations that, and I'm talking about companies that employ tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, they have employees all over the world and they do, it's essentially kind of a profit sharing where they say, here is a pool of money, say $20 million that we wanna make available to any of our current or former employees Sometimes it's just current, but it could be current and former employees to apply for a grant to help them rebuild after a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever. Okay. This organization that writes this is a nonprofit and they are doing the Lord's work. They, they have to field these requests and get the money out to the people. You know, my buddy loves it. He's like, I just give away money to people who really need money every day and it feels amazing and um their problem though is that they have to gather a bunch of personal information to classify these people Th they come in and they say i am an employee of corporation x uh i live in this place that just was declared a federal disaster area or i live in this country where we just had this really bad earthquake um and i need money to help me rebuild my life my house right so they have to collect all this data and that makes them subject to GDPR requests and, you know, CCPA regulations and all that stuff. And they have an, a significant burden, uh, not only collecting the data, but storing it securely and being able to answer to these requests and delete requests. And it was to the tune of like thousands and thousands of dollars to do a full audit of their databases to gather all the GDPR data that they could respond to it, right? What we can do is I could build that policy as a verifiable computation. And as long as these corporations issued employment data to their employees as verifiable or as uh, authentic data, 
uh, which is trivial, by the way. It's just a little bit of crypto and, you know, makes it verifiably authentic. Then when they came to this organization for help, they would send the, the code to them to run in their, in their wallet or whatever over their private employment data. And it would verify that they are an employee and their home address is this, and they live in a federal disaster area and they qualify. Now that organization gets the answer they need and the paper trail they need without collecting any of that private information. And it essentially eliminates like to zero their compliance burden for GDPR or CCPA, because they are literally not collecting any data on any of these people they interact with. So someone says, Hey, what I'm making a GDPR request. What data do you have on me? And the company goes, nothing because they don't have any, they haven't collected it in the first place. It, you don't have to collect the information to make that kind of a business work. And that's true for the vast majority of businesses. That's the cool thing about this. And so when I sell this to companies, it's like, how much do you spend on your GDPR compliance? How much do you spend on, you know, trying to avoid FTC fines because someone broke into your database of credit card numbers, like all of that information, how much is that overhead costing you? We can restructure your, you know, e-commerce, your, your electronic transaction system so that you can still function as you do today without ever collecting any private information at all. And they just nod nod at me and they're like, if you could make that happen, that is amazing. Right. And we're seeing significant interest from industry, um, number of projects on underway right now, we're essentially flipping the arrow on digital transactions. The current state of the art for digital transactions right now is how do we secure the data going to the code? You know, and there's a lot of cool companies out there, like Evervault out of Europe is really cool startup. They, uh, you know, they intercept data coming off the page. They put it into secure enclaves. They, they keep it encrypted. And then the companies that use them send code over and then they decrypt it inside the vault and they do it all their whatever. And it's all about still sending the data to the code and they have to jump through all these crazy hoops, but it's very innovative. And that's what I would consider the current state of the art. But what we're talking about is reversing the arrow. We're not going to send any data anywhere. We're going to send the code to the data itself. And I think the reason this hasn't been done before is because one, we don't have the authentic data economy. We didn't know how to do it because we couldn't do revocation at scale, but we've solved that now. And we, um, we now know there's been some advances in, in, uh, what are called untrusted setups of verifiable computations that have happened in the last two years that make this actually feasible. You can do small verifiable computations in a reasonable amount of time on mobile devices. But even then, if, if they're more complicated, one of the areas my company's moving into is an acceleration platform for the verifiable computation. So, um, we'll be able to do that as well. Anyway, this, this is really critical that we realize that we should stop sending data anywhere. You should get the data about you from the organizations that give data about you your DMV, your doctor, your credit rating agency, your bank, and you should keep it private and you should never give it away because the second you give it away, you lose all power on the internet because there will be copies and it'll get sent everywhere and monetized, and analyzed. What are you going to say, doc? You had something you wanted to bring up. Oh, I got a bunch of things. Um, so 
the defaults, I just put this in the chat because nobody's listening to the chat, but if you look at GDPR compliance, you're going to get, depending on where you are and what Google's doing at the moment, over 200 million results. Almost all of those are companies selling um, ways to obey this, the letter of the GDPR while completely screwing its spirit and by continuing to track. And I, I don't, I, there are very, 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 very few companies that, at least if you're looking at them through their websites, yeah. that are not trying to harvest as much personal information as they possibly can, no matter what. Right. The GDPR and the CCB have done nothing to slow this down, but they've done a lot to completely screw with our experience of using the web because it makes it harder. And we're even more exposed than before because people, most people just say, screw it. I'm just going to accept the thing. And they're, you know, you've got a cookie that says, go ahead and harvest all you want about me. And I'm wondering what kind of companies are going to, I mean, in, in my experience, okay, it's, it's really, really hard to sell against the defaults here. The defaults are you're a company, you want to do KYC, know your customer. You've got to harvest everything you can on the open web and in every interaction you have with a, with a customer. You're going to go to, um, uh, uh, you're going to go to, um, forgive me, my phone's ringing. I'm ignoring it. Um, uh, you're, you know, you're going to go to, um, Axiom and hell Experian. I don't know all these companies and they're going to give you data about the, yourself, your, your hunting license, your DMV, all these people are, are also busy selling personal data about you. There's a vast market in personal data. How do you argue against that? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you can find some companies that are buying your service, but it seems to me like it's an uphill struggle. Uh, yeah, but you can't be zero trust architecture through gathering data, first of all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, the federal government saying we're going to do this is going to force all of the companies That's good. that are interfacing with them to do it. The second thing is, is does that marketing information that you're selling, your company selling, does that really cover your bottom line, your compliance, your risk? So, no, I mean, it, 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 does it really? Market. It's a horrible market. Yeah. I mean, there, and, and in fact, the, I don't know. I, I, okay. Here's okay. Kim Huang, Tim Huang, good friend wrote this book two years ago, subprime attention crisis. It's about the bubble that is the entire advertising FICO system, I call it, because it's fecal. Um, <laughs> I've and, never heard that. That's good. And, and yeah, and, and I was, you know, he said in 2020, the thing is going to crash. I said in 2008, the thing is going to crash because it actually does not work for the most part. Now ignore Facebook. Let's take Facebook and Google off the table because they do work in their own diff very different ways and are examples only of themselves. But yeah, every website that you go to is busy harvesting a zillion things about you. And, and that's, that's the default. But I'm wondering if there is now that the, the feds have come out with this, uh, 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 zero trust market, uh, zero trust imperative. Is there a subset of all the companies out there is a, yeah, we're on board for zero trust. That's your market, obviously. And you're, and you're telling yeah. me that or you're telling us that there is that, I mean, there is a subset of, of the multitude of companies that are busy trying to screw you that some that are saying, you know what, the zero trust thing is really a great place to restart the economy we actually need to have. Also, it gets us out of a lot of trouble that we're never going to have because we don't even, we don't even care what the GDPR says, because we're not collecting any of this crap. Right. That's exactly right. And I think in the end, 
there's a bit of a double network effect because once we get one company that is producing their outbound data as authentic data so that any company that consumes that outbound data, whether it's credit reports or, you know, whatever, insurance, or I don't know, anything like bills of lading, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, the increase in trust reduces the risk to any company that is ingesting that data. And then if you combine that with cryptographic qualifications so that you avoid the regulatory risk burden, you know, re regulatory burden and the, and the risk of collecting personal information um, and avoiding like the straight bottom line overhead of having to do audits annually about your, you know, SOC 2 compliance and your, you know, PCI compliance and your GDPR, you know, all that stuff. Um, it's actually, I argue, it's a competitive advantage. The first companies in will see huge gains in their bottom line because it'll eliminate a lot of their, their, their liabilities and then also increase uh, the efficiencies between, you know, B2B, B2C to B, that kind of stuff, because they'll be able to issue data for their customers as authentic data, which will then be the preferred data taken as inputs, you know, to other companies. And I'm hoping that there's a double network effect here. You know, once one gets on board and they, and they're making a better profit and are more competitive in a market, you'll see all the companies be like, holy crap, we need this. And in many ways, it's like, once I'm publishing as authentic data, I'm going to call my business partner or, you know, the other businesses I do work with and say, Hey, if you have this, you can, you can verify all the data we're giving you is authentic. Right. And that sh alone should significantly incentivize companies to, um, to switch over to at least to be able to verify that the data they're taking is authentic. You know, so when you're doing B2B stuff. A, in a way your cell is, there, there's a subset of companies out there that want what I just put in the trad is. Uh, zero bullshit overhead, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. because yeah. that's ZBSO. You have zero bullshit overhead. I mean, one of the first heard here. Yeah, <laughs> I just made it up. But I, I was thinking that, I mean, one reason that Trader Joe's sells good food for a low price is they have absolutely no interest in customer information. None. They, yeah. There's no, there's no loyalty program. There are no gimmicks. They don't even have multiple prices. There's no you know, you're a loyal customer, you get a different price. They get a price, that's the end of the price. Nothing is on sale ever. So all that overhead that was basically gaming the customer goes away. Yeah. And I've been waiting a long time for that sensibility to hit, but maybe this, you know, zero trust is one of the bullets that can hit, hit a target on this one because, well, because that, that, that overhead is massive. Marketing overhead is massive. And when, when, when the CMO kind of rose up the corporate ladder, there was no such thing as a chief marketing officer. There, there was a VP of sales and marketing and it was a salesperson and the marketing person had no power. That was 30 years ago. Now the chief marketing officer for the last 15 years has been sucking um, a budget away from every other corporate function in order to, you have to have data on the customer. There's data out there, suck in all the data you can. You need big data at all costs, you know, and I'm, I'm waiting for that tide to turn and maybe this will help turn it. Especially well, if, you, if you actually have customers, then, then the tide is turning. I would say. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so I had, it's that she brought up a grocery store um, because the, the second answer, the one that I think should legitimately scare everybody out there um, is 
the topic of my most recent article called The Theory of Digital Gates. Hmm. I was waiting and- for you to get to that one. <laughs> this is the good controversial stuff, probably, I think. Right. I skimmed it. So here's the theory. And maybe I didn't do a very good job in this article. I almost want to rewrite it, um, having reread it, because it maybe doesn't get to the, the kernel of the idea up front or soon enough. I kind of bury the lead a little bit. But um, if you go outside, which I know a lot of us don't do anymore, but <laughs> if you go outside and you go to, you know, you drive down the streets where your supermarket is and there's some retail stores, all of those stores are what we would call open to the public, right? Which means anybody can come in, anybody can buy something, anybody can leave, right? Um, and the important thing to realize about open to the public is that the corporate leaders who run the companies that own those spaces have plausible deniability about who comes and goes from their stores. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like if you went to an executive from Kroger grocery store or any grocery store and you said, I'm mad because so-and-so uses your grocery store and I don't like so-and-so because I don't like their politics or I don't like what they say on Twitter. How dare you let Ted Cruz into your restaurant? Is a comment <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. Okay. Now the, the people who run those businesses would say, I don't know who uses my grocery store. I don't know who uses my, you know, subway franchise. And, um, it remains to be open to the public. Anybody can come and go because of that plausible deniability. I want to point out who doesn't have plausible deniability. The companies that do not have plausible deniability are online services, primarily social platforms, such as Twitter and Facebook, um, PayPal, Square, you know, Stripe or, uh, you know, um, all the payment apps that we have, you yeah. know, like Cash App and stuff like that. They do not have plausible deniability. They know exactly who uses their platforms. I mean, we're ignoring all the sock puppets on, on Twitter, yeah, and everything yeah. like that, but they, they strive, they put, they put a lot of effort into knowing exactly who uses their systems. How do those systems operate when someone who is persona non grata, you know, popularly unpopular people try to use Twitter? They get Twitter, banned. They get they banned. Are removed. Yeah. Right. Why? Because the internet mob comes after them. And it's like, how the hell do you, you know, how dare you give a platform to this person who's popularly unpopular? That's one of my favorites. I think at some, at some level, I assume they're worried about liability, you know, at some level or in the future or God knows. It has a name. Yeah. It has a name. It's called reputational risk. Mm. This is what financial systems, financial institutions use to deny processing electronic payments for companies and individuals, as they say, if we were to do business with you, that would present uh, substantial uh, reputational risk to our organization. And we have a fiduciary responsibility to preserve the value of our company by minimizing reputational risk. This is the justification that Visa uses to, to prevent processing payment in PayPal to prevent or to, to ban Perfectly legal companies, I need to point out, perfectly legal companies like Defense Distributed in Texas, right? They follow every law, they 
do all the right things. They pay their taxes. I have to Google that. That's Cody Wilson's company that uh, sells machines to turn to make ghost guns, to turn eighty uh, percent lowers into functioning firearms. Oh, the three D printed gun. Yes, yes, I remember that. Okay. Okay. Defense Distributed sells a manufacturing sells a home manufacturing box, and they run DefCAD, which has all these plans for firearms. They are not allowed by the financial system to process any payments because they're so wildly unpopular. Because of the reputational risk. That's the claim anyway. Um, but that company is, I assure you, 100% legal. Because if there was even a tiny fraction that was illegal about that company, they would have been shut down yeah. years and years ago, right? Um, and this applies to, you know, fill in the blank. Any company that's unpopular. Any, any company that runs a web page that has a subscription service. Like, uh, you know, uh, there are social personalities who talk about controversial topics, you know, COVID has been a big one and vaccination has been a big one these days and companies are blocking their ability to have like Patreon subscribers, that kind of stuff. If they don't toe the line on whoever, you know, whatever, which way the wind is blowing, I'm not casting any opinion here. I have no opinion. I just want to observe the system as a whole and how it's functioning or not functioning. And in a country that ostensibly has the right to free speech and the freedom of press in its one of its most founding like cherished documents and is a founding principle of this country to know that uh if you say the wrong thing you can't collect money for it because there's some corporate you know board that says that's a significant reputational risk to the organization like that, that seems like a dysfunction right. especially in this country and um the only i think only fan oh sorry I was going to say, I think the only reason that exists is because they don't have plausible deniability. They can't be like, well, we just process payments for everybody. We don't discriminate at all. Right. But we know they have to because of financial regulations. They know they know. We, they have to know who it is. Deal with what were you going to say about OnlyFans? Oh, I was going to say OnlyFans is the, is the one, is always the example that comes to mind. And it's frankly a more fun example because it's, you know, it's possibly controversial, but more amusing. Um, because, you know, they, but they reversed the decision, which is, you know, interest, which is interesting because I don't know, I guess it depends on the social climate, but, but yeah. the idea of a platform banning the only possible, you know, moneymaker that they could ever have, because, you know, is it used for anything else? I don't know. I've never actually seen it. Well, I think they started off as a Twitch competitor. It was going to be people's they did? I had, video games I had, or something yeah. like that. But I've never actually here. seen OnlyFans, full disclosure. I have no idea, but, you know, I. I mean, no, I mean, internet reputation that it has a <laughs> certain purpose. And if they eliminated that certain purpose, I'm not sure why it would exist anymore. But the, but the yeah. pressure, like you say, was coming from payment processors. But right. then I guess they backed them off. I don't, you know, I don't know, but uh, who knows? An I don't interesting know. case study. I don't know the story behind that, why they reversed. That would be really interesting to get that out. Yeah, we should find uh, out ne next episode. Maybe we'll have an answer. Yeah. So I'm building to a climax here because what I want to say now. That oh, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, no pun intended. So now that we, <clears throat> now that we explained, you know, plausible deniability and um, reputational risk, th this is the scary part. There right now is a huge push to roll out vaccine passports, right? Mm -hmm. The VCI just put out a piece the other day, that's the vaccine credential initiative, 
um, bragging about how 12 states are on board and there's something like 200 million people are, can have access to their app to have their digital COVID vaccine, blah, 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 blah. Right. And they're encouraging the adoption of their technology. Okay. They are putting up digital gates in front of things, in front of spaces that are currently open to the public with the idea that to get into a grocery store, you're going to have to flash your, you know, you have to do some QR code electronic thing to prove that you're immune or have been vaccinated or whatever. Okay. The problem with this is that the, they, they claim that it's privacy preserving, but it, there's biometric data involved to link it to you. And so it's not really privacy preserving. It's not absolutely private as I would define it. And that means that there's identity da data available to the digital gate at the time of presentation. So I want to go into my grocery store and I have to verify my COVID status. The data I give that gate includes a biometric data about me. It may not say my name, but it gives enough information. Enough fingerprinting. Yeah. Yes. These big empirical models could be like Dave Hughes immediately yep. like that. And, and by the way, you need a new coffee machine. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't even think it's a marketing thing because my article on the theory of digital gates is that the, that whoever runs a digital gate is going to optimize it for the value to their organization. And the inputs to that optimization function are maximizing profit, which is what you just alluded to, right? Can we do marketing and all that stuff? Um, but it also has to minimize reputational risk to the organization. And they're going to use every piece of data available to them to optimize the value of that gate to the organization because they would need to justify the cost and, and whatever, the compliance. Um, which means that if that gate knows who I am, whether explicitly because I told it or implicitly because it was able to fingerprint me and access some database in the back end, then it's going to apply reputational risk. So even if it says, oh, we're just checking your COVID status and I'm very popularly unpopular when I go through that gate, it's also going to be um, tacitly dishonest and do a reputational risk check as well. So even if I am immune, even if I have been vaccinated, it could still deny me entry into a grocery store because I am someone, you know, that's unpopular. Um, I said the wrong thing on Twitter and, uh, um, they don't want to, now they don't have plausible deniability that I'm accessing their grocery store. And so they're optimizing their, their, uh, they're, they're minimizing the reputational risk. And so the thesis of my article is this, if we build digital gates in front of all of these spaces that are open to the public today, and those digital gates have any identifying information available to them, identity information or fingerprint or otherwise, the net result will be the construction of a social credit system without any conspiracy. Mm -hmm. There won't be a conspiracy. The, it does to a certain degree. So, so th this reminds me, I, I'm not sure. Uh, so I, I understand what you're saying about the reputational risk and people who are popularly unpopular, but I think the more real threat is, is something like a story I remember from, oh gosh, I don't know. I think it was in the past year, but a young black woman tried to go to, I think it was a skating rink 
and was denied entry to the skating rink because they had some kind of, frankly, half-assed facial recognition software or something at the door that identified her as looking like somebody who was flagged for, I don't know if it was violent behavior or, you know, some, whatever it was that they were looking for. And the girl was not let in to a skating rink. It wasn't her. You know, she, she did, was not the person that she was identified as. Um, and whether or not she was, you know, is beside the point, right? It, really? I mean, what if, or grocery, you know, what if grocery stores could flip a switch and, and block entry to anyone who shoplifted when they were a teenager? You know what I mean? It's, there, there, right. there is a slippery slope argument, I think, there. there uh, right. I mean, that maybe I, people haven't thought of. I, I think that people are afraid of a social credit system and the, you know, the pervasive surveillance of physical spaces, and, and rightly so. I think it is a valid concern. I mean, everybody's seen the Black Mirror episode and they've yep. seen what's happening in, you know, <laughs> in other countries of the world. Yeah. And people are rightly saying, like, that's, you know, you're going to have to beat me here, but that's fucked up. Right. Nobody wants to live in a system like that. That's global yeah. tyranny. Okay. Yeah. And what my, what I'm arguing is that no gate, no matter what it says it's doing, can have identity or identifying information made available to it because if it does, it will, by definition, be using that as part of its check and it will enforce a social credit. Whether it's, it, it was designed to or not, it, the, the organization that operates it is going to be like, well, we no longer have plausible denial. So we have to, because of our fiduciary responsibility, minimize reputational risk. So, you know, uh, defense distributed can't process payments. Cody Wilson won't be able to go to the grocery store. Yeah. That's what we're going to And so the, the social credit system, I think, is going to get built without any conspiracy. There's not going to be like a smoky room. Well, it already exists, doesn't it? Isn't there, 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 there are these, where was this company? I mean, I, I could still Well, you can, it. but there I are. I still go to a baseball game and I can still do most of the things I need to live without having to prove my COVID status or anything like that. What I'm worried about is that this COVID digital vaccine check is being used as the justification to get these gates in place. And I'm arguing that they will come out of the box saying, all we're going to do is verify your COVID, but they will be used to enforce social credit because they'll have identity available to them. And, and that's why like my company is open sourcing and we're pushing this technology of these cryptographic qualifications, which can apply a policy while denying the gate any identifying information. That's the whole thesis here. Right. Mm -hmm. If we have to have digital gates, then they have to be using cryptographic qualifications. It's the only way we're going to avoid a social credit system. Right. I I can I, I I understand your argument. I think a lot of people would react that, you know, it sounds far fetched or whatever. But I think I think the important thing to remind people is that, that these things exist. These there are con, there are consumer scores that are based on sort of the data that is gathered about it. It's and they do exist. And it's actually very difficult, as I understand it, to have your data removed from these from these rather weird and shadowy uh, organizations. <laughs> it's not just it's, it's similar to a credit score, but I, I, I'll post a link to to some more info. We talked about it in a previous episode, too. But, you know, are these they came out a few like in the last year and, it, you know, it was scandalous at the time that there are these these companies who to who. who uh, right who track this information but they, but anyway I, I think where where this is going is that as long as the data is available 
it's going to get used for something you don't want it to be used for period 100%. like that is, that is really i mean that's all we really need to know because it's already being used for for things that we would not be happy about whether we know about them or not totally i i agree with that completely and one of the cool things is is that if we can you know if if this technology is successful in the market and starts to displace some of the old school digital transaction systems um we can basically draw a line in the sands of time uh, where we start to deny the internet as a whole, right? I mean, surveillance capitalism is universal now. So um, we can deny the internet our personal information. So there's a line in time where it's like, okay, from now on, you don't get any of my data. <clears throat> we're still going to do business, but we're going to use cryptographic qualifications. And I have my own private data as verifiable data and, you know, as authentic data. And I'm never going to let it leave. Um, the cool thing about personal information is it has a shelf life. It goes bad. It is fresh fruit. It is fresh caught fish. Um, we all change as we live. We change jobs. We change where we live. We change our incomes. We change our family status. We change our health status. We change everything. Humans are dynamic creatures. And if you took a snapshot of me 15 years ago, I'm hardly recognizable. Obviously there's some macro data that doesn't change, you know, my race, my gender, my, my height, now that I'm an adult, like that doesn't change, but all of the other stuff, you know, how much money I make, where I work, what are my political leanings? All those things are in flux and they change. And so once we get that line in the sand drawn and we start starving the system of data, we could actually kill surveillance capitalism. I don't think it will take much doc. You were like saying, hey, I hope this collapses. I don't think it's going to take much of a push. I think it's a house of cards. And once companies realize that um, they can make up any loss uh, from not collecting customer data with the savings that they gain from not having to do all these audits and, and regulatory compliance and risk insurance and everything around having that data lay around. I mean, private data is, personal data is like toxic waste. Nobody wants to collect and yeah. store that stuff. I have a so, is that the, the, the radon gas of business. The right, exactly. Killer. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think once businesses start realizing that uh, monetizing customer data doesn't actually make sense, and now we actually have an easy system, technological system, that can replace their existing one that allows them to, to you know, trade a loss in their income with a savings in their overhead. And also increase the trust in the data that they're producing and the data they're consuming, which also further reduces risk and makes things easier. You know, it increases the overall trust level. Um, I think that we could see the entire structure collapse almost overnight. The entire like surveillance capitalism business model. I mean, we all know that like click fraud is the thing and advertising is like 30% fraud on the web, you know, there's, it, it's not going to take much. Yeah. There's a, uh, Augustine Fu, uh, F-O-U, um, at AC Fu has been on this show several times like you have. Yeah. I'm talking about this and that's his, that's his, uh, stock and trade is, uh, is ad fraud. Uh, it's massive, yeah, but, 
the numbers he throws out are always kind of mind blowing. <laughs> like just the fact that it's it's not even there aren't even enough humans alive and using the internet to generate the ad clicks that that exist. I know, I know. It's like yeah. you can only do this with, with like faking it up, and yet it's so easy. I mean, I think we probably all, if we took any a stat course, read how to lie with statistics, which came out in like 1953, and it, it's this going on. It only now it's it's all automated, right? It's you know, the, the line with statistics is I throw a lot of numbers at you, and yeah, yeah, it justifies it. Yeah, um, but but I I mean I I I I hope it's your mouth to God's ears in the sense that um, uh, it is a house of cards. I hope it's a house of cards. Um, I tell you though, I've been shaking that house of cards for a long time, and it has not budged. So ah uh, yeah, but you're but you're actually you have code, and I just have words. So. Um, that makes a difference and you have a business and you're, so what is the name of your business? If you feel okay about sharing it. Cryptid technologies, C R Y P T I D. Okay. Like, you know, cryptids are, um, mythical beasts like Bigfoot <laughs> and Loch Ness. And so we thought that it was apropos because, you know, we're, we're hunting the things that everybody says exist, but nobody's ever seen. We're hunt, we're hunting the truly private digital transaction. We're hunting you know, true personal privacy. We're hunting uh, meaningful reductions in fraud. We're hunting all of these things um, with our technology. Our, you know, and we are leaders in applied cryptography. We have many years. Uh, that's not us. Not cryptid.io. Okay. No, we are cryptid.tech. And our website is absolute crap at the moment. I think it's probably like a default uh WordPress. <laughs> we've been, we've been at your heading here. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> now it, I don't feel bad head... about some of mine. Like... <laughs> we've been heads down on the crypto code so that we have Maybe the first to, to say to you, Laura, if some dollars sit there. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You know, we're, we're planning on making some real splashes, uh, headline grabbers here in the next few months. Um, one of the cool things about our, the technology we've done is uh, we've worked out a way to do universal NFTs because what we've invented, authentic data economy is the the mother of all digital rights management platforms. Universal NFTs. NFTs yeah. are getting so beat up right now. And right. so tell us what is the, what is, okay, what is the pony in NFTs that nobody else is seeing? Because right now, well, it's, it's so proven. This goes back to what we started talking about. Everybody's think, everybody's looking for authenticity, provable authenticity. Okay. And so when people buy NFTs, a lot, there's a lot of speculation, right? This is like right the here. new toy that all the crypto, you know, rich are playing with. But, um, one of the things that supposedly attracts people is that when you buy an NFT, you have provable provenance that you own it, right? It's authentic yeah. that I own it. It's like when I go to buy a Da Vinci painting right? A physical painting. Um, I can go and get one that, that is a, like almost an exact replica of like the Mona Lisa oil on a canvas that someone else painted. Okay. Not Da Vinci, not the Mona Lisa, but a copy. And that's going to cost me, you know, a couple grand. Okay. If I were to go buy the Mona Lisa, it would be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions of dollars. What am I actually getting? If I can get a copy of the Mona Lisa from an artist down the street, what am I getting if I buy the original one? I'm actually getting that stack of parchment letters 
that prove the provenance of that painting. That's what I'm really buying is the letter that says the Louvre got it from this gallery and that gallery got it from this noble family and that noble family got it from this other church and that church got it from this noble family who literally paid da Vinci as a patron to paint the painting, right? There, there is a stack of letters that, that documents an unbroken chain of custody on that 400 year old painting, right? And so that's the thing that's different. There's two oil paintings that look identical. One has a stack of provenance letters and one does not. The one with the stack of provenance letters, the provenance log essentially, is worth uncount, you know, ungodly amounts of money, billions of dollars. The one that doesn't, I paid a couple grand for. Okay. Mm -hmm. NFTs, that's why this, this whole joke of like, I right clicked and saved and stole your NFT. It's like, well, I can make a, I can buy a copy of the Mona Lisa. That, that's well, the, but that's, your that's average NFT is not the Mona Lisa. <laughs> no, I understand. I'm not saying they are. I'm just, the point is, is that that's not the point. The point is you're no. buying the provenance of ownership. And what I find really funny is that Moxie, uh, being an applied cryptographer himself, uh, finally pointed out the emperor has no clothes, which is what all of us knew for a long time when we looked at how they actually work yeah. under the covers. They're not recording like hashes and, you know, content addressable, whatever pointers to the actual data. They're just, they're recording URLs. And we all know that URLs can point to servers that can come and go and that you yeah. can program a web server to serve up any data for any URL, right? And that's what Moxie did. He made an NFT and he, and he made it so that it, it would show a different image depending on who was looking at it. Yeah. And, uh, it, he rightly pointed out the technical limitations of what these companies are doing and they banned him. He bought an NFT or he sold mm -hmm. that NFT and then they took it down off his platform. And he was like, wait a minute, I thought I owned it. I bought it, right? Or someone bought it. I thought they owned it. How did, how are you able to take it down if it's supposedly in the blockchain? And anyway, it, it's a really fun thing. That's why NFTs are getting beat up. But what we're talking about here is true ownership. I own the data and I own the provenance log. And I can, and it uses applied cryptography. And if I need people to trust this provenance log, I can anchor it using cryptographic accumulators that amortize the cost of big, uh, blockchain transactions. I can anchor it anywhere. I can put it in Bitcoin, I can put it in Ethereum, whatever. And what I put there is an actual cryptographic proof of ownership. It links back to the off-chain provenance log. So we're back to the stack of letters, but it's digital. It, it's essentially the... The same thing as what we already do today for real property. Uh, the title for my home, that right. the deed for my home or the title for my car can be registered at a county clerk's office, right? The deed for my home is, right? And the title for my car, you know, can be registered. Uh, if I write a book, I can go to the copyright office and I can register it and, you know, I can assert my ownership rights. That's what we mean by the authentic data economy. It's like every piece of data has an associated provenance log with it. And some of the cryptographic innovations we've made, cryptographic accumulators um, being the most notable one, allows us to amortize the cost of that. Um, cryptographic accumulators can, can hold any, any number of uh, provenance log updates in them. It could be a billion, billion, billion in a single proof that's only 32 bytes long. And you can store that in a Bitcoin transaction. 
So essentially, if you want to look at it from a Bitcoin stamp or blockchain standpoint, we can make the transaction throughput of any blockchain effectively infinite by storing the transactions off chain in a provenance log and storing proof of state in a cryptographic accumulator that gets recorded on chain. And, and this allows us to achieve scales of authentic data and essentially universal NFTs, um, you know, 10 to the 18 billions and billions and billions of people and devices creating billions and billions and billions of pieces of authentic data that not only is provably authentic, but also can be revoked. So that's the part for e-commerce. It's like, sure, I'm, you know, I'm Equifax. I'm going to give you doc, you know, your credit history as authentic data. We later find out that you misrepresented yourself somehow. We can revoke it. And part of those cryptographic qualifications is verifying that your authentic data is not revoked, right? So, um, so it all flows together. And so I have a way, I mean, sorry, doc, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this. No, no, go. I worked at, I worked out a way I own an NFT on it. Well, I mean, I use air quotes, right? Because Moxie right. showed me don't really own it. If I burn, if I create, if I download the NFT, it's an image and I build a provenance log using our system, you know, which is open source, by the way. And I anchor it in Bitcoin. Okay. The hash of the provenance log, which is also the ID of my ownership, like that's the cryptographic proof that I own this document. That creates a big random number. Now, if I go onto OpenSea and I burn, quote unquote, burn the token by moving the token to an address that is that big random number, it makes the token unspendable while at the same time, it records in their blockchain the cryptographic identity of the external provenance log. So I can liberate NFTs from these platforms and take ownership of my, you know, myself. Because and I can choose whatever blockchain I want to be. Because you've got the external provenance log. Yes. And Okay. So, okay. As a... It's kind of fun. So, so what do we have for muggles? Okay. So... A muggle listening to this say, okay, I want my own external provenance log and I want my authentic data production machine. Can I get one? Yeah. Okay. Right. Oh. We're in the process of building that right now. We can make everybody their own NFT marketplace. So if you write poems or you like, let's say you're have a small following on Twitter because you tell jokes on Twitter or whatever, you could monetize your tweets. You could take the data of your tweets create a provenance log, anchor it, and then put it for sale on your website. You know, okay. using PayPub or whatever, we can, we can do it. And then a, a key, you know, we can transfer then, ownership using the provenance and then if, log. If Twitter says, ah, we, I don't like you anymore. Uh, I'm kick, kicking all your stuff off of here. I have something that says I own that that's now gone. Um, a URL that points to a deleted tweet or a suspended yeah, account. Uh, right. Well, you don't do the URL. You grab the content of the tweet, obviously, because okay, you're owning, right. that's the data you own, right? We're um, not worried about bytes on a blockchain anymore, which is why OpenSea and these other now Rarible, that's why they record a URL and not the data itself, because they're worried about the number of bytes being stored in these blockchain transactions. We accumulate... <laughs> proofs of state in these accumulators and the accumulators are only 32 bytes and they can have any number of proofs of state in them. And that's what gets recorded in the anchor, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, it doesn't matter. And so we, we can amortize the costs, right? Uh, this potentially could solve the energy problem for Bitcoin, for instance, right? 
or whatever. Like one of the things I should point out is that this has it because it's fully decentralized, it has a relaxed double spend protection. So I would not say use this for cryptocurrencies, although maybe there is a way like using the L2 protocol or something to do it. Um, but that's not what we're trying to solve here. We're trying to solve the positive assertion of ownership rights. And that is congruent with how things work in the United States and always have worked in the United States for intellectual property and in Europe as well. Like if I'm the first person to come up with an invention, I file for the patent first, I get the patent. Not you, doc. You were two minutes behind, right? We had the same idea, but I filed first. It's mine. Okay. Same thing for copyright. Same thing for, you know, all of the intellectual property kind of legal regime in this country, as I understand it, who comes first owns it. And that's all we're doing is we're actually leveraging the, the fact that these public blockchains are really cool in the sense that they're clocks. Like Bitcoin is a clock that ticks every 10 minutes, roughly every 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And nobody can stop it from ticking. More importantly, nobody can go back and change the fact that it did, that it ticked and what the data associated with that tick was. And so by putting these proofs of state in at a certain time, we can establish total global ordering. And so I can assert that I was the first person to take that photo, mm -hmm. right? I'm the first person who, you know, wrote that poem. I can prove it because I made a provenance log and I anchored it two years ago. You claim to own it. You're saying your proof is two weeks ago. Well, here's a proof from two years ago. So I win. I own it. Hmm. That's, that's what we're getting at here. And I can't wait to liberate my NFT from OpenSea and write a whole article and send out press release. I think it's going to be really yeah. fun. I hope more people do it, especially in light of Moxie's article. So Catherine, we're an hour. Yeah, no, I think we're into this thing, and you're you. We've covered it. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, editing, time, you guys. editing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. This is this is good. It's always uh, a learning experience, and um, yeah, yeah. I hope we've uncovered some stuff, and I hope uh, without without sounding like our ten foil hats are too tight. But seriously, this shit's real. <laughs> yeah, I, what really scares me is the the eradication of plausible deniability for uh open to the public spaces mm -hmm. right that thing really scares me because i think that that's that link to the skating rink <laughs> yeah the, I, I think that i think the so, the global i think the social credit system would form itself spontaneously because of this combination of these perverse incentives right the reputational risk and fiduciary responsibility plus the lack of plausible deniability that immediately turns every grocery store, every gas station, every, you know, rental office into like Twitter in the sense that they have to police who uses their systems. Mm -hmm. That really scares me. That really scares me. That I think is the strongest argument for absolute privacy I've ever come up with. You know what scares me the most? As long as we're on the topic. And what scares me the most is all the things I haven't thought of that people might do with all of our data. That's no kidding. <laughs> That's it's true. Always, yeah. I'll send you, let me send you a bunch of links to my articles. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six to share with you. The very first oh. one I ever wrote was the principles of user sovereignty followed by unified through decentralization. That's our philosophical foundation for our entire company and everything we build. And then the more recent stuff in the last few months was 
achieving absolute privacy. Zero architecture is the way forward, which describes cryptographic qualifications. And then my latest one, you know, the barn burner is the theory of digital gates. And so I'll send you guys all of those. Um, I'll probably have to do it over email because we're going to get off of here real quick. Right? Yeah, I don't think I can good. scare them up while we're on here live. Yeah, yeah, no, email them. That's totally fine. Um, yeah. yeah, so, well, cool. Well, I'm sure our listeners will look forward to me, including them in the description. Yeah. Hey, we're looking for angel investors. I should have to say that, you know, and that's yeah. where we're at. I'm the CEO. So we are looking for angel investors, the right investors. So if anybody in your audience wants to get a piece of uh, our company and let me know. <laughs> you got to work on that website though. Just saying. You know, I think it might become a joke that our website is so that's that's what, you know, this is your NFT right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to make an NFT of that, you know, it's like. Take a picture of that and sell it. You know, you know this is, this is your zygote uh, that is not yet, you know, a blastula or something. Yeah, you know. I think what's going to be really funny, I, I, I can't figure out what it is and I'm open to suggestions, but there is something that we have created that is like, might be valuable to somebody. <clears throat> And I want to sell it as the first universal NFT for sale on our website and sell it for like a million bucks. And if you bought it, that money would build this company, right? And I don't know, yeah. maybe like you get the ownership, you get the rights to the principles of user sovereignty or something, right? Like imagine if JPB had sold the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace as an NFT, right? He could have funded the entire EFF for years if this even existed back then. So, yeah, yeah, it barely existed. Right. So anyway, it'd be fun. Oh, our, I admit our website sucks. So if anybody wants <laughs> to volunteer and help us, that's, that's great. great. We're, we're code guys and we were crypto code guys. And so <laughs> not HTML. Not HTML. Well, yeah. Um, we're fixing oh. the website, but yeah. it's slow, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, well, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you to everyone who has made it this far. I appreciate it. And thank until you next so time. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, you, you're wonderful people. And I love the opportunity. Okay.